Hey, stay tuned, listeners. I hope you and your loved ones are staying healthy and safe during these extraordinarily difficult times. As many of you know, Ann Milgram and I co-host the Cafe Insider podcast, where every Tuesday, we break down politically charged legal issues making the headlines. The podcast is part of the Cafe Insider membership, and I'm so glad that insiders are staying engaged, writing in with questions and comments. Thank you, as always, for helping support our work. As we make sense of the ongoing coronavirus crisis, this week we are taking down the paywall on the podcast so that everyone can listen and participate. This week, Ann and I discuss constitutional questions around presidential succession, the debate over voting by mail, and Attorney General Barr's recent comments on religious freedom. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now on to the show. From CAFE, welcome to CAFE Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Ann Milgram. Hi, Ann. Hi, Preet. How are you? Happy Easter. Yeah. Yes. And to and, you. And, and to everyone celebrating. everyone celebrating. Yeah, exactly. So we opened up the entire economy. The country's back to work on as of Easter, right? As the president <laughs> said a couple of weeks <laughs> it, ago. It was it was not actually. Yeah. It was very it was a very interesting day. We uh we saw my parents and we sat about 20 feet away from them. And then we took a walk and it was a really quiet it was a quiet day. So So, so no, you do 20 feet isn't open. You do yeah. 20 feet well, cuz you want a buff you want an extra margin of 14 feet. <laughs> No, I'm guessing it was about 20 feet. We just sort of, you know, we sort of sat at a distance and uh, did a little Easter egg hunt. But I feel like one of the things that's complicated and confusing about all this is that six, first it was, you know, six feet, then it's maybe people's spit can go beyond six feet. And so I just, you know, we were just being cautious. How about you? How was Easter? You should, you should, you should probably stick to Easter egg hunts and not spitting contests to avoid that problem. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, stop it. Yeah, we had a we had a quiet weekend and we had a we had a small Seder over Passover and um you know, waiting for the country to reopen. I guess we should talk about that. Th- there continues to be all oh, we've talked about it before, this lingering question in people's minds, because the president causes a lot of confusion as to who has the ultimate authority to quote unquote reopen the country. The president said yesterday, it's hard to believe that you can be more astonished by pronouncements he makes. But he said yesterday, and it's gotten a lot of attention, when asked about reopening the country, he said, when somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Is that true, Anne? Is your is your authority total if you're the president of the United States? No. And you know what's fascinating about it is that I sort of feel like from everything the president has done since the day he came into office in 2016, like that, that is in fact what he believes. I think it's the first time he's ever said it so bluntly, but all of his policies, all of the way he makes decisions, the way he refuses to provide information to Congress is completely consistent with that view. And it's completely inconsistent with the truth of the United States of America, where we have the 10th amendment to the constitution that says specifically all powers not enumerated in this in the Constitution are reserved to the states and the people. And so it is very clear that the president, while having vast powers, has limited powers. And so it was just an astonishing thing to hear. And what was your reaction? It's sort of like an alternate reality moment of you're watching something and you can't even believe that you're listening to the president of the United States say something that's so untrue. Right. But you keep thinking that's not going to happen again and again. It does. My, look, my reaction was what I posted on Twitter last night, because someone reminded us that a month ago, in response to a question about the inadequacy of testing, the president was asked, do you take responsibility? He says, no, I don't take any responsibility at all. So you, know, you put those two things together, and the president basically is saying, my authority is total, but my responsibility is zero, <laughs> which, is, which is kind of an odd combination. Totally. It's even like I was jarred by the fact that the president does have some really important powers in a, a, in this crisis. And we've talked about it, you know, the Defense Production Act. That is an astonishing amount of authority for the president to basically say to a private business, I am commanding you to make personal protective equipment and make ventilators. And yet he was very slow to use it. He's only used it in really limited ways, right? He's got He's used it a couple of times for ventilators and PPE, but nothing like, neither as quickly nor as thoroughly as I would have expected the president to use it. And so it's like the power he does have, he has not really used. Then he's going out. And and really, this is about, and we talked about this a couple of times 
The point is that at the end of the day, the governors are the ones who have put the emergency declaration stay in place orders in in effect in different cities and states. Mayors have put them in cities, governors have put them in, in states. And so ultimately the governors hold the power to really decide when their states reopen. And so the president can reopen the airports, he can reopen international travel, he can do a number of things. But when it comes to people going out and going to work, unless they're a federal government employee, it really is going to depend on, and even then, the governors, if they have orders saying you can't be on the streets, then that prevails. What did you make yesterday, Preet, of this thing that we saw? And and I'm surprised we haven't seen it earlier, which is that we now have 10 governors who joined together, a few on the West Coast, and I think six or seven on the East Coast, including New York, New Jersey, and California, obviously, Oregon, Washington, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. So there's at least one Republican governor, Charlie Baker of Massachusetts, is in there. And they represent almost 40% of the economy. And they've essentially banded together. It's like it's kind of like the Articles of Confederation in 2020, where you have states agreeing to work together, basically, so as not to be competing against one another, and so as to make decisions about schools and when people are allowed out in connection with one another. Yeah, look, I think that's an interesting thing. I think that, you know, as Governor Cuomo keeps saying, at a minimum, you have to do these things regionally. And here in the tri-state area where you and I live and record, you have New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey, and people live in one of those states and work in one of the other states, and people are crossing the borders all the time. So you can't have one policy for New York and a different one for Connecticut or New Jersey. And just going back to what you were saying earlier, with respect to who gets to reopen and who's in charge of that, remember, the, the governors are the ones who put in the stay-at-home orders in the first place. They're the ones who wound us down. They're going to be naturally the ones, not just as a matter of the 10th Amendment and constitutional law, but also as a pragmatic matter, they're going to be the ones who wind us back up. I'm offended by so much of what the president has done, and I really, that's not even a strong enough word. I think i think that the fact of the matter is that all of us should be voting like our lives depend on it, because they literally do, and the president has just failed in, in every possible way. But this is yet another example where even now in the stark reality, we have more than 20,000 Americans who've died. We have countless, you know, tens of thousands of others who are in hospitals, many on crit- in critical care. And the president is still worried about being able to to say that he's the boss and worried about his ego, in my view. And that is just, it's just not acceptable. Yeah. As I look at the TV screen, I think the current figures we're recording on Tuesday morning is close to 24,000 Americans dead. So the toll keeps, keeps rising. And the president has put together, at least so far, and maybe there will be additions, I guess, reopening the country council, open the country council. And it has you know, a lot of notable health experts like Jared Kushner and uh, Ivanka <laughs> Trump Ivanka. and the Commerce and Secretary, the Wilbur, Secretary Wilbur yeah. Ross. You know, some some of multiple of the people on this so-called council, I'm not sure he'll spell it correctly, literally said some weeks ago that the coronavirus will not have any negative impact on the economy in the United States. And Wilbur Ross was on, t- I, I can't believe this man still has a job. Wilbur Ross went on television and literally just a few weeks ago said, So I think it will help to accelerate the return of jobs to North America. Meanwhile, 17 million million people have filed for unemployment. Yes, and many many are unable to file for unemployment because they weren't being paid on the books to begin with. So the number at 17 million is going to be small. Wilbur Ross can't stay awake for a meeting. He thought the coronavirus was going to be good for the economy and good for jobs. And he is one of the handful of people who the president puts on a council to decide when to reopen the economy, what what could go wrong? So the the council, at least as reported yesterday on Fox, and it was said the president was going to announce the fullest today. And look, maybe it turns out that this was a trial balloon that the president floated to see how people would respond. And I think it's fair to say that the response was very negative. But it's his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who was a member of the House Freedom Caucus, and he recently resigned from the House to become the president's chief of staff. Steve Mnuchin, who's a Treasury Secretary, of course, had a long career at Goldman Sachs. And, you know, I don't know if he's a billionaire, but he's certainly an extraordinarily wealthy individual. Larry Kudlow, he's the chair of the National Economic Council. Before that, he was on CNBC. He was a Larry Kudlow, just pause on, pause on Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow said, before the market dropped double-digit percentage points. Long-term investors should think seriously about buying these dips. So so that's yep. that guy. Yep. And then there's also a very wealthy individual, Robert Lighthizer. He's the U.S. trade rep. He's a longtime D.C. lawyer, was served in the Reagan administration. He's been a partner at a big 
white shoe law firm for a very long period of time, also incredibly successful. And then finally, as we just discussed, Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce. And before that, he was a Wall Street banker. He was known as the king of bankruptcy. And really, it's it's worth pointing out a couple of things. First of all, there's not a single doctor. Second of all, I mean, Jared and Ivanka, there's not a single qualified person really on this committee. I mean, obviously, you would expect the Secretary of Commerce to be there because this impacts business. But what you have is a bunch of people who are all extraordinarily wealthy, in my view, do not understand what the vast majority of Americans are going through. They have no healthcare expertise. And there's just this sense of they're all Trump political appointees. They're all insiders. And it just is such this moment of, again, believing that the president doesn't want the advice that's that's right for the American public. He's worried about getting people to do what he wants and having people he can control. And basically two of his family members and then five people who are part of his administration are basically, they're not the ones who are out providing essential services. They're not the ones running small businesses. They're not the one whose family members are losing jobs. And so it just strikes me that they're like, they're not qualified from expertise. And they also, frankly, in my view, there's no one who has any empathy for what the vast majority of Americans are going through that's sitting on that. So there's so many reasons why it's bad, but I mean, it, it's a sign that the president wants the economy back open, right? Yeah, I mean, he wanted to, he wanted to open it on Easter, which is now past. But we should just point out that we're recording this on Tuesday morning, April 14th, and there might be some announcement of additional people being added to a council or an, or an additional council with maybe people who are independent-minded and outside the administration as opposed to... I mean, someone said all the people currently announced already work in the White House. They don't need a council. They can just call a meeting. So by the time you hear, <laughs> you, by the time you hear this, there may be more folks, but so far... It doesn't look so great. Is Dr. Fauci going to be on it? I don't know. The, the President of the United States retweeted someone's tweet over the weekend, at the end of which somebody had written the hashtag fire Fauci, which is an odd thing for the president to retweet, and then has to then has to issue a statement saying we're not going to fire Dr. Fauci. Doesn't inspire a lot of confidence at a time when most Americans tend to credit what comes out of Dr. Fauci's mouth and less what comes out of the president's mouth. Yeah, I agree. So I guess, and we should talk about one of the other consequences of the coronavirus and the way it's going to affect elections. We spent some time talking last week about what happened in Wisconsin. It was kind of a mess where there was wrangling over whether or not there could be voting by mail. By what date do people need to return their ballot, even if they didn't get their ballot until late in the game before the election? And this is going to play out, as we said, in state after state after state. And obviously, we have a very important election coming up. And a lot of people are saying, well, vote by mail is a real substantial and good option. And so I thought we'd spend a few minutes talking about what the state of play is. So it turns out that there are five states that are all male states, the pioneer of which was Oregon, as we discussed, and they do all their voting by mail, and it seems to work out pretty well. Then you have another 28 states that allow for no excuse or no fault balloting. The one difference there is voters in those 28 states have to affirmatively request a ballot. And then there are a bunch of states that allow you to obtain a ballot for cause. So for example, you're serving in the military or you're away for college or you have some other reason why you can't go out. And the question will be in many of these states, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it over the coming weeks and months, is does the existence of a continuing pandemic and threat to public safety, will that qualify in states that don't change their laws as a basis to obtain an absentee ballot and be able to vote by mail? So I think this is an incredibly important still slightly under the radar issue relating to the coronavirus. Yeah. And and I think it's a really important issue that has to be resolved fairly quickly because to get absentee ballots for the November election, in a lot of states, people are going to have to request them by June. And so states may extend those deadlines, maybe July, but it's not that far off. And it's very, very likely that those deadlines are going to come when we're still in a state of uncertainty. And one thing I think that's really worth talking about just for a minute is that a vast number of people already vote by mail. And so one of the statistics from the Brennan Center, which I thought was really fascinating, is that in the last two federal elections, roughly one out of every four Americans who voted cast a mail ballot. And they expect that this election would will be at least half the people will be voting by mail. And so it's really important. And it's really critical, I think, in the states that require some reason for people to vote absentee, 
that those states make decisions now as to whether coronavirus, usually it's like it's listed as illness or disability, which is the basis for the reason that you need to get an absentee ballot. And the question is, will those states honor coronavirus and the potential right. that coronavirus? Fear, right. Yeah, Not fear, illness, fear but of, fe- fear of illness. And by the way, the, the voting by mail is going to be uh, higher in part because there have been states since the last election who have changed their law, including two big swing states, Michigan and Pennsylvania, moved to no excuse vote by mail uh, for the first time in the upcoming election. So it's the, it's the way of the future. The question is, are we going to get it in more places than we even expected? Yeah. And and look, it's a really good idea for people to be able to vote by mail. I don't understand why you have to have an excuse to be able to vote for mail. And, and I think some of it is we've heard the president, the president tweeted out on April 8th that mail-in voting is, quote, ripe for fraud, even as you correctly noted, noted last time, he himself voted by absentee ballot. You know, the piece that's important for folks to understand is that there is verification that goes on even when people vote for mail. And so the way that states use to detect and prevent fraud is basically the mail ballot envelope itself. And so each voter has to include some personal identifying information. It could be their address, their birthday, their driver's license number, the last four digits of a social security number. And there's a signature that they match against the voter rolls. So usually people have voted in person before and they match those signatures one by one. And so there are a number of mechanisms that are already in place to make sure that the voting is safe and secure and that there isn't fraud. And so the idea, like the Brennan Center did work and looked at the number of fraud cases related. There's been more than 100 100 million mail-in ballots since 2000, and they basically have noted that the percentage of cases of proven fraud are 0.0000001%. Right. I think they were talking about, I think they were talking I think they were talking about Oregon in particular. Sorry, million, yes, that's 100 right. million ballots cast since they began voting by mail and that percentage works out to about 12 proven fraud cases when it relates to ballots. There's no basis to believe based on the track record because this is not a novel thing. It's been going on for a while that there has been significant voter fraud or that there's a capability of committing significant voter fraud. Think about how such a thing would arise. It seems to me that there's you know a pure partisan basis for not wanting there to be voting by mail. I mean, the other thing that the president said was not just that he believes there'll be fraud. He says, you know, some, he said something like voting by, by mail doesn't work out for Republicans. And so look, parties of both sides have for decades engaged in all sorts of voting peculiarities to benefit one side or the other, whether it's gerrymandering or something else. And this seems to be a thing that the president believes is not good for Republicans, is not good for his reelection. And so he's going to be opposing it. We'd also talked a little bit about some bills that are pending in the Congress for there to be national action, federal legislation to allow for mail voting throughout the country. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate will allow that to happen. So I think this is going to have to be something that's decided on a state-by-state basis. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't I don't think there's going to be federal legislation, though. I do, I do think that there should be because I think, look, what we saw in Wisconsin last week was unforgivable in my view. And, you know, it's interesting. The Republicans pushed really hard. The state legislature refused to allow the governor to change the way that people voted so that they didn't have to show up in person. And so the end result, I think that the most hotly contested race was the state Supreme Court race was one of the hotly contested races. The Democrat actually ultimately won. The Republican did not win. But it really is unforgivable, regardless of the outcome of the election, to make people vote in person during a pandemic. And so I really think that Congress should act. I agree with you, it's not going to happen. And it's worth noting that the swing states, the states that both Republicans and Democrats think are most likely to be in play in the November election, all six of those states that people have talked about, they already have the legal structure And there's a great Atlantic article by Ronald Brownstein that basically goes through this in detail, that there's already legal structure in place for mail-in voting, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And so there's already going to be a huge amount of mail-in voting. And in some ways, this issue has been decided in many of the states that will matter the most. But I think it still needs to be litigated in the 17 states that require people to show cause. And one thing that I think people need to keep an eye on, as is often true, on issues relating to law and policy, the devil is going to be in the details. Just the fact that you say there's mail-in voting allowed in a particular state doesn't tell you how easy it's going to be. It doesn't tell you how much access there's going to be. There are questions with respect to whether you have to request a ballot or will ballots be automatically mailed to you. 
how soon you can request a ballot, whether the um, the local authorities are going to be so overwhelmed that they won't be able to get all the mail ballots out in time. That's part of what happened in Wisconsin. There's going to be a question about whether or not the voter has to put postage, return postage on the ballot to get it back in. So there are all sorts of little questions about the mechanisms and the tools for voting by mail that will, at the end of the day, in a close election, make a big difference. And actually, people in states should get their state legislators to work on and their state, the, whoever heads the elections, often it's the secretary of state or there's a commissioner of elections. Those decisions need to be worked out now because they really are important. And you just hit on something that's critical, which is that states simply, and again, I oversaw elections in New Jersey for a period of time, the group of folks that worked in the election division, it was really small. And obviously they hire poll workers for election date, but the total number of full-time staff, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was under 20. It's not large. And there is no way that folks will have the bandwidth to process what I, I think will be a sea change in the number of people voting by mail. And so states need to get ahead of that now and figure out how they're going to process it and what processes they're going to put in place to make sure that they are able to get the support that they need. One other thing, Preet, I mean, I think Trump has made this argument that Republicans will not be able to win if they go to mail-in voting. I just, I don't credit that. And I wanted to get your your gut on it. I mean, it feels to me like what the president is afraid of is that people who, he may think that there are people who lean Democratic, who can't get to the polls on election day. Maybe they work two jobs, maybe they've you know got childcare issues or whatnot. But it's weird to assume that all those folks are Democrats, number one. And number two, in coronavirus, it's like, why would you possibly assume that the Republicans want to go to the polls and risk health issues? You know, nobody wants that, right? So it just feels to me like such no, a the weird general understanding. Argument. Yeah, no, the general I mean, I'm not I'm not a, a campaign expert or a demographics expert when it comes to politics. But the general understanding is that older voters favor Republicans generally. That probably remains true in some respects, depending on the particular state with respect to Donald Trump. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what assumptions he has in his head, but he has a strong view. Now, the sort of background issue to all of this, which we can talk about more in the future, but there's a cynical view that as, as the post office is struggling to meet its financial obligations. There are Republicans saying, and the president seems to be moving in this direction, they don't want to bail out the post office. They want to bail out the cruise lines, but not the post office. And some people are cynically saying, and I don't have a view on this yet, is that part of the reason that people don't want to save the post office is that will help put the nail in the coffin of mail-in voting in November. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that. And if that's true, it's really it's really horrifying to me. I mean, the post office is such an important part of our country. And look, we've all moved digital and electronic in so many ways. But, you know, I just I did not understand how you can have a government that doesn't have a postal service and that will not would bail out a private cruise industry. And, you know, look, I understand people like to take cruises and it's part of the American economy. But, you know, to value that over the hardworking men and women who deliver mail to all of us every day is just, it's, it's just beyond belief to me. So I hope that's not true. I mean, I hope that's even a level of cynicism below where the world is today. You know, there's a lot of bad news, horrific news, terrible news with respect to COVID-19, but from time to time, there are bits of good news. People who have gotten sick and who've been quite sick have recovered. One example of that is Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister who last week kind of dramatically it was announced was moved to the ICU, which is never, never, ever a good thing that happens. A lot of people don't ever emerge from the ICU. He's been taken out of the ICU and he's actually been discharged. But the reason that you and I have been mentioning it is it brings into sharp relief what happens if a virus like COVID-19 affects the leadership of our country. And we have lots of people in the royal family in Saudi Arabia who have been stricken, lots of people in the government at high levels in Iran. And so not to be macabre about it, but it raises the question, what happens if both the president and the vice president are incapacitated at the same time? And you know, this comes as a little bit of a surprise to me, and I think to you, that the law is not a thousand percent settled on this issue. Everyone goes around saying that the Speaker of the House is a heartbeat away from the from the presidency, or two heartbeats away from the presidency. Everyone assumes it's the, after the president, as the Constitution provides, the vice president becomes the president, and then after that, it's the Speaker of the House. But you know, there's some debate about that question just to, to set set it out. So there's a succession clause in Article 2 of the Constitution that says very explicitly, in the case of a president's removal or death or, or some other incapacitation, the office's powers shall devolve on the vice president. So that's clear and in the Constitution. But then the Constitution says, 
if both the president and the vice president cannot serve, quote, Congress may by law declare what officer shall then act as president, and such officer shall act accordingly until the disability be removed or a president shall be elected. And the question is, what qualifies as an officer? And there have been three succession statutes passed, one in 1792, one in 1886, and one in 1947. And the one in 1947 says in the text of the statute that the next person in line is the Speaker of the House, who happens to be Nancy Pelosi. But as you and I have been discussing before coming on the show, and the reason we're taking up this topic is there is not unanimity in the belief that a member of Congress is properly considered an officer within the Constitution's meaning. Yeah. I mean, I think we both find this fascinating and mostly because of the fact that because of the 1947 statute and because of the language even of the Constitution, everybody believes, or at least in my lifetime, I was taught that it's the president, the vice president, and and then the Speaker of the House. And it's really important to note that the 25th Amendment to the Constitution says that the president can appoint a new vice president if the vice president cannot serve for whatever reason. And then that would be a simple majority vote by Congress to approve that. And so the likelihood of getting to this point is one reason people don't think about or talk about it a lot is that it's a very, very remote situation to think about, except when you start thinking about things like terrorism or pandemics. And then it becomes a really, it's a real question that some people have raised. And it's definitely worth thinking about. What's also really fascinating to me is that, you know, it starts with the U.S. Constitution that says exactly what you read. And then it goes to this point where the initial decision that is made is, you know, the first secession statute is 1792, where it's the president, the vice president, then it's the president pro tempore of the Senate, also known as the president pro tem, which is a senior person who's, I think, is it the longest standing member of the Senate or it's it's done, it's the majority party. Um, and then it's the Speaker of the House. And so that's the rule for a very long time. And then in 1886, the law changes, Congress changes it because what they don't like is this idea that you could end up having the president and vice president be a one political party. If for some reason, both of them could not serve, then you end up in a situation where the speaker of the house could be from a different political party. And so Congress was reacting to this idea that the people had elected the president and vice president of one political party and through the secession rules as they existed up until 1886, you could have had somebody from a different political party and this idea that maybe that would cause problems and, and sort of undermine undermine the decision, the will of the people in the prior election. So that's why they change. Then in 47, you have Truman basically saying, actually, the most important thing is to have the will of the people expressed. And so the Speaker of the House is somebody who's elected. They're elected first by their local representatives as a member of the House of Representatives, and then they're elected by the majority of the House of Representatives to be the Speaker of the House. And so instead of letting it be, essentially, it was it was the Secretary of State. If it was under the, the 1886 law, it was the President, the Vice President, and then it was the Cabinet officers by the age of those Cabinet departments. So it would be the Secretary of State. And so here, you know, you could sort of play out. That means it would be Pompeo, who's not elected by the people versus Nancy Pelosi, who is elected. And so Truman really believes that it should be the will of the people. And so it flips back. But you're right. There is a debate. You know, my personal view is I think the stronger side of the argument is that the Congress that passed the 1792 Act that basically said president, vice president, and then legislative leaders, the Senate and then House leaders, that they were closest to the Constitutional Convention. The Constitution allows the use of the word officer to refer to members of the elected Congress and, and in the federal system and the state system. And so the arguments made by folks saying it can't be a member of Congress, there are arguments to be made, but I personally at this moment in time think the better side of the argument is that it should be the president, the vice president, and the speaker. But the biggest issue, Preet, is like what happens if you know, let's say that the president and the vice president couldn't serve for some reason. Nancy Pelosi says, I'm the Speaker of the House, I'm next in line. Like, what happens if Mike Pompeo, Bill Barr writes an opinion saying, you know, that law is unconstitutional, the 1947 law is unconstitutional, so Mike Pompeo is president. And that leads to a lot of, obviously, problems in our country. Right. We should point out that that is not our hypothetical. That's a very interesting hypothetical posed in an article by our friend, Harvard Law Professor Jack Goldsmith, who analyzes some of these issues. And by the way, just just, just one more thing on the, on the question of whether or not there's ambiguity on the succession and the constitutionality of the succession statute. 
there was a bipartisan continuity of government commission established in 2009. I don't think Wilbur Ross served on it, by the way, just FYI. He was excluded from that. And also Jared Kushner didn't serve on it. But, but a lot of prominent former senators and Justice Department officials and judges served on it. And they concluded that, quote, there are serious policy and constitutional objections to having congressional leaders in the line of succession, close quote, because it is weird. You know, I, I think personally that Nancy Pelosi would be a better president than Mike Pompeo, but that personal preference shouldn't play no role in what the ultimate decision is. And it is an awkward thing out of the blue to have someone from the other party take the, the leadership of the country when every single cabinet officer, every single White House staffer is an appointee, a political appointee of someone of a different party from before. I understand the argument. That's a bit chaotic. But I also agree that expectations have been set in a very serious way in the minds of the public, including in the minds of two lawyers like you and me, that absolutely the third in line, or I guess the second in line is the Speaker of the House. And any deviation from that would play out very poorly with respect to the public. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting. I mean, I think that the bipartisan commission is a great, you know, it's not binding, but it's a great thing to point out because what they basically said is that the way to deal with this is to adopt this proposal to remove the congressional leaders and give it a five-year delay before it goes into operation. So no one knows which political party could benefit from that. But the bottom line is nobody's ever done anything. And so we live in a world where that change hasn't been made and we have an existing law that says it's the Speaker of the House. And so to me, it has to be the Speaker of the House. And unless there is a move to change it, obviously, and that change should be prospective, not for today. And so it really is a very, very interesting question. And there's also an argument to be made that if for some reason the president and vice president can't serve, that you put the speaker in and that that you change this. And you could even think about having an election sooner than waiting the full four-year term, right? And so there's a lot of ways that I think people could think about addressing this, but right. it just the likelihood to me- is, Yeah, the likelihood is that this scenario will not arise. And the tiny likelihood that it does arise, it will probably happen in the absence of any of these new statutes or new policies being enacted. And so we're in the state of play that we're in now. I mean, a hundred years went by before the second succession statute was passed, then another, you know, 50 or 60 years. And now it's been, you know, 73 years since the last succession statute. I don't think there's a huge appetite to do anything about that right now, particularly in a, in a split Congress. And so hopefully it's a hypothetical that never comes to pass. But, you know, it, it is an interesting question and maybe an interesting movie premise of what happens if there's an impasse. You know, we, we, we use this term constitutional crisis from time to time, we talked about it in connection with the Mueller investigation. All of that pales when compared to what happens if you have a cabinet officer who thinks that he is the rightful heir to the presidency, where the Speaker of the House thinks differently, and how that ties up the country in court challenges and who has standing to bring the suit. And in the meanwhile, how a nation is unified and how policies are enacted. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a nightmare. So pre in the middle of all of this, someone comes back who we haven't heard from in a long time, and it's Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, who goes out in an interview on April 8th and says that a number of different things, including... And the politicization of, of decisions like the hydroxychloroquine has been amazing to me. Before the president said anything about it, there was fair and balanced coverage of, of this very promising drug and the fact that it had such a long track record that the risks were pretty well known. And as soon as he uh, said something positive about it, the media has been on a jihad to discredit the drug. It's, it's quite strange. He goes out, he's accusing the media of being terrible and how they're covering coronavirus. He goes on to say that impeachment is, quote, one of the greatest travesties in American history. He then spends a lot of time discussing threats to religious freedom. Um, and he's talking about the fact that, you know, across the country, these restrictions have been put in place. And as a rule, those restrictions, a couple of states have have exempted religious services, But most states haven't. Most states have basically said no gatherings of more than 10 people or five people. Whatever those rules are, they've been applied generally and to the public at large. And whether it's a sporting event 
or it's a religious service, those have been equally applied. And so Barr has talked about restrictions on religious freedom. And he wasn't just talking about coronavirus. He's also talking about a number of other ways in which he personally sees that he believes that religious freedom is being trampled in the United States. And this is this is part of this very far right narrative about LBGT rights, about, you know, the right, you know, for example, the question is, you know, can people deny services to LBGT folks? Questions about school, about whether the federal government should be funding religious schooling institutions. But it was this really like, I did a double take when I saw him in the middle of all of this coming out. And I'm just so curious to hear what you thought about it, Preet. I'm going to resurrect an article by our, our friend and colleague, Jeffrey Tubin that was some months ago, but it could have been written in the last day to describe how Bill Barr sort of moralizes on the issues of, of religion and other things. And there's a paragraph in his story, again, from some months ago, talking about a prior Bill Barr speech in which Tubin says, quote, Perhaps the most galling part of Barr's speech under current circumstances is its hymn to the pious life. He denounces moral chaos and irresponsible personal conduct as well as licentiousness, the unbridled pursuit of personal appetites at the expense of the common good. By contrast, religion helps teach, train, and habituate people to want what is good. And then Tubin ends by saying, throughout this lecture, one can only wonder if William Barr has ever actually met Donald Trump. Now, on, on the substantive question you began alluding to, as to what, if anything, the Justice Department is going to do in terms of an action with respect to religious freedom, I'm not quite sure what to expect. And we can take a minute to talk about the constitutionality of government actions that infringe on people's religion. Look, it's, it's clearly true if the governor of a state or the mayor of a city says people can't go out and they can't uh, gather in, in numbers more than 10, whether that's a grocery store, a park, or a church, that is infringing the ability to practice one's religion. That's certainly true. But the Constitution also says that you can do that so long as you're not singling out any particular religion. And depending on whether or not you meet that standard of not singling out any particular religion, what is the basis on which you can say that that government action is okay? There's a case that I'm reminded of, which is sort of nostalgic for me. It's called Employment Division of Oregon v. Smith, decided in 1990. 6-3 decision, opinion written by Scalia, who essentially said, and I'm simplifying it, so long as a government action is not singling out any particular religion, so long as there's a rational basis for that action, and in that case, it was a law, a local law, that prohibited the smoking of peyote, which is a narcotic, that so long as there's a, there's a rational basis for it, legitimate purpose, then it can be upheld. And by the way, the reason it's nostalgic for me, if I can share, going back a long time, it was literally my first moot court argument and brief in my first year of law school. So it brought back both good oh, and wow. bad memories. On that case. Refamiliarize myself with, with, with Employment Division of Oregon v. Smith. And in this case, I think a court would decide reasonably that so long as it's the case, like it seems to be, that there's a rational, legitimate basis for telling people not to congregate in large numbers, no pun intended with the use of the word congregate, that it passes muster. And by the way, the stricter test that was rejected by the court back in 1990 was compelling interest. The law, I think, I think currently it would pass is that, that test. You, I think it would pass that too. What could be more compelling than protecting people from a, from a global pandemic that's killing tens of thousands of Americans? So I think the Justice Department would be within its rights to make sure that in certain places, they're not particular religions that are being singled out when they're you know, less restrictive alternatives. Maybe one issue is to the extent that some churches want people to be able to worship or gather in their cars and parking lots and with social distancing mechanisms put in place, that should be permitted and there shouldn't be no overarching law to prohibit that. That seems to make some bit of sense to me. I don't know what you think. I think it's, th this is also interesting. And I was just thinking as, as you're talking about some of the exemptions that have been made and the one that made me scratch my head. And what I would sort of argue is you always get in trouble when you single out certain groups. So the way that most governors have done it is just to say, you know, no gatherings, limit yourself to your immediate, the people you're sheltering in place with and so on. But did you see that the Florida governor 
Ron DeSantis basically has, he initially did not exempt professional wrestling. And then he decided after being lobbied by the World Wrestling Federation that he would allow professional wrestling to continue. Now, no audiences, it'll just be filmed, I believe. But, you know, I think you get in trouble That's when religion. you start to... Yeah. <laughs> My husband would say soccer is a religion, but you know, you get in trouble when you start to like carve stuff out like that. And again, I mean, I'm with you. I think it's so clear to me that this would meet the compelling interest standard. I mean, it's hard to think what is more compelling than government taking action to protect the lives and safety of its inhabitants, citizens. And so I had the same reaction you had also, which is Barr comes out and says, DOJ is going to take action on this. And my first thought was, are you going to sue someone? Like, who are you going to sue? And it feels absurd. It also feels to me in the midst of a global pandemic where, you know, if there was a governor who was singling out uh, religious institutions, which, by the way, having read a lot of these shelter in place orders, I haven't seen one that that does that so far. I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't one. And obviously, if there was one singling out a specific religion or religion instead of other gatherings, that would be problematic if you said you can't do that, but you can do these other things and they're essentially equivalent. But so it feels weird to me, and maybe it's guidance DOJ is going to issue, but it just felt really off to me in the midst of a point in time where so many people are sick and dying, and we're all concerned about the welfare and well-being of people who you know can't put food on their table, their jobs don't exist anymore, to sort of be fighting this fight. It felt very odd to me. Yeah, at the time of this recording, we haven't seen any announcement. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe it's perfectly appropriate. But it is an odd thing, right, in advance of having some policy prescription guidance or some lawsuit that you're announcing to sort of just say dramatically that the spokesperson for the department will be taking action with respect to religious freedom next week. Yeah. And, you know, it's not that the department can't do more than one thing at a time because obviously it's massive and it can. But I was thinking also a lot about the fact that the, the Bureau of Prisons is within the Department of Justice. So they oversee all of the federal penitentiaries throughout the United States. And there are real issues with security and safety and coronavirus in those institutions right now. And, you know, Barr has taken some action, in my view, not enough, but there's so many important things that DOJ and Barr should be focused on now. It just felt like a strange time. And also to come out so politically on the impeachment thing at this moment in time, it just felt to me like a very inappropriate and strange time to be making these types of arguments when, you know, obviously there's a lot that people should be focused on. Yeah, there are a few examples. I don't I don't know enough facts about this, but this is more in a gray area, if you ask me, but I'll, I'll venture to mention a couple of them, even without knowing all the facts, just to put them on the table. We can talk about it more in the future once there's an announcement. You know, there have been enforcement actions taken with respect to houses of worship who have tried to adjust how they do things. So I think there was at least one or more Easter Sunday drive-in services and to the extent that's banned, I don't know if there's an argument to be made. There may be a rational basis to ban people congregating close together in an open church, but maybe there's not a good reason and not a rational basis, much less a compelling interest to say you can't have some sort of drive-in service where everyone is socially distancing properly, et cetera. And maybe that's a legitimate thing to look at. I just don't know. But as a general matter, I wonder what this is about. Yeah. So one of the things that that's been reported is that the civil rights division is looking at is looking at this. And so, you know, I I'm an alum of the civil rights division. I will be really curious to see what it falls under. I mean, obviously there's criminal enforcement, there's education enforcement, there's special litigation that deals with police departments, there's employment. And so it'll be really interesting to see what the lens is, but obviously it's going to be there's going to be an argument that, you know, the constitution ensures people have freedom of religion and that there's something that's happening that is either harming that the ability of people to exercise that in a way that's unfair and unconstitutional, or that they just want to provide guidance or make a policy statement. It's also really weird. And I should say this as an alum and also obviously as a former prosecutor and, you know, sort of state policymaker, it's really weird to come out as Preet just said and say, stay tuned you know, this is coming, unless there's a reason or a call to arms that, you know, it's really important to make that statement. Like it just, it's always weird to sort of say, you know, in five days, I'm going to make an announcement about X, as opposed to just waiting those five days to make an announcement. So it feels strange to me and more political, perhaps because of that. Um, but again, you know, we have to wait and see what it is and what comes out. It was just to me jarring to see. Yeah, maybe they didn't have their, maybe they didn't have their act together 
and they want to make an announcement in the midst of the onset of Easter and Passover. And you know, there's a constituency who wanted to hear that is happy about something and they wanted to hear it. But as you say, it's odd. The announcement should be the announcement, not the announcement that there will be an announcement. So one of the things, Preet, I wanted to just touch on while we're together today is this idea of contact tracing. And I think it's important because as people talk, and, and I think all of us, you know, people want timelines for when the world is going to reopen and we want to know what that's going to look like. And obviously, you know, the short answer is that people don't know yet and that it's going to be metric driven. So it's going to be driven by understanding when we flatten the curve on infections and hospitalizations, when we have sufficient testing that we can do contact tracing, meaning if someone comes down with COVID-19, we're able to trace back to all the people they came in contact with to inform those people and isolate everyone, quarantine those folks for the necessary period of time while the rest of the community can stay safe and healthy. And that kind of contact tracing and the ability to go back to some forms of life as we know it, not fully, we're not going to go back to life as we know it until there's a vaccine, essentially. But what will happen is we'll start to open up as long as we can trace and really figure out who has the virus and who else might have been in contact with them. And if you remember back, one of the real mistakes that the administration made and that a lot of governors and mayors made was because we didn't have testing, we assumed that people didn't have it when we should have been assuming the opposite. We should have been assuming that everybody has it because we don't have testing to tell us otherwise. And so the idea of opening up the world really requires that we have testing and the ability to trace. And so what's happened in the last week or two that's worth just noting, and there's some debate around it already, but it's worth just having the beginning of this conversation, which is that An extraordinary thing happened where Apple, that obviously they make Mac computers and iPhones and Google, they run this whole search engine and many other things, they came together. And and there are also Google phones, obviously, that run on Android and Apple runs on the iOS operating system. They came together to basically announce a partnership that would allow Americans to basically help stop the spread of the virus and others, not just Americans, but basically to help people stop the spread of the virus with contact tracing. And so What is amazing about this is that right now, everybody knows if you have an iOS, an Apple, or a Mac, that system doesn't talk to an Android system. So you might have a Samsung phone and somebody else has an Apple phone and they communicate with each other, but they're not on the same operating system. And so what will happen is that these companies, for the first time, are going to allow those systems to work cooperatively. They're going to create something called an API. We don't need to go into all the tech stuff, but, but basically the bottom line is that people would have the choice to voluntarily opt in. And if they opt in, their phone would basically be geolocating them and finding them in connection near people with other phones that have also opted in. And essentially what would happen is if someone ended up getting COVID-19, they they would then alert that app on their phone that they had it, that they would be given you know advice to, to self-quarantine, to tell people that they know. But then that, the system would reach out to the other people with whom they've come in contact with in the past 14 days, let those folks know that they were in contact with someone who's tested positive and give them advice on what to do. Ideally, go get tested themselves in a place that has sufficient testing, quarantine if need be. And it would basically allow us to start contact tracing. Now, what's really important is that it is done in a way with a mind towards privacy. So it's anonymized. It's basically the data would be connected to one another in sort of 15 minute micro segments. And so it's not like everybody's data would exist together on the same server. So there are a number of precautions some folks have come out and said, look, we have to be careful about sharing information with government like this. This this is how government starts to surveil all of us, that there's no end in sight. And that often yeah, in and times, it's not just random information. It's not just, you know, regular it's personal. It's really data. important. It's yeah. the most protected information that we that we have, personal private medical information. Which yeah, can and be you used can think about purposes and bad purposes. Exactly. And I was gonna say as to the bad purpose, like you could think about a world in which people could be discriminated against based on having tested positive. Like there are tons of ways in which we we have to think about how to limit its use. And Google has promised not to use the data for anything. Apple generally doesn't use people's data. They've promised also not to use the data for anything. So it's really critically important how this gets done. But in my view, you know, as I've thought about it, 
and we should keep talking about this because look, there are other systems that may evolve. And I don't think this system alone will not be enough. Obviously hospitals and healthcare providers need to be a huge part of the system, putting in information to help the tracing. You know, there are countries, particularly in Asia, like South Korea, Singapore, where they have teams of health workers, community health workers who are going out to alert people, hey, you came in contact. And they're literally like detectives. They're like, tracking down, okay, you were at this restaurant at this time with these three other people. And then they're going out to notify those three other people and get everybody isolated and quarantined. So there's a way in which like, and I'm not suggesting by the way, that we're going to do it as aggressively as a number of the countries in Asia are, but there's a system that must be in place for us to go back to any semblance of normal life. There's a level of tracing and testing that has to happen. And right now the only option that I have seen that is viable is this one. And so I don't think it's the end, but I think it's really important for people to understand and for people ultimately to understand how important it will be for all of us to opt in that our ability to go back to work, to go back to school, to protect one another will really depend upon having this kind of information. And of course, figuring out, and they, you know, Google and Apple, if they don't already have a privacy committee for this, they should have one with the top privacy experts in the world. And obviously they would have access to those people. And so thinking about how to do it in a way that protects people the most, but understanding that there is no question, but that somebody has to do it. And and frankly, at this point, I have not seen the federal government step up to the plate and take action. And obviously the CDC would be a part of this, but they just, there hasn't been enough federal government leadership. They couldn't even get a test rate. The idea that they can create a whole track and trace system while they're also doing these other things, it just feels to me like a lot of this will be done through these types of public-private partnerships. So I don't know if you have any reaction, but I, I really wanted to talk about it because I sort of, I see the sort of fear bubbling and I think the fear is completely legitimate, but it has to be counterbalanced by the, what is an excruciatingly strong need at this moment. Yeah, we're running out of time and, and I think I need to know more. There are people who I respect who seem to be optimistic about this, including a recent guest on Stay Tuned, Andy Slavitt, who tweeted, you know, I hope everyone opts in for one another. This is a time to pull together in new ways, close quote. And there are other privacy folks who are worried. And I think sometimes in times of trouble, we too willingly and easily relinquish our privacy without full knowledge of how some of that information is going to be used. I think it's good in concept. I'd like to know more about the details and what the protections are. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about it a lot more. So look, th things are proceeding. There's some reason to believe, at least in New York, that there's a leveling of the curve. In lots of places, that's not true. I think there are other places who are going to start seeing more hospitalizations, more admissions to the ICU, more deaths. And, you know, we'll keep trying to analyze it for you and keep an eye on things and stay safe. You too, Preet. I'll talk to you soon. That's it for this week's Insider Podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Calvin Lord, Sam Ozer-Staten, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the CAFE Insider community.